Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Peak Human Project. Today, my guest is Dr. Joe Klimzeski. Some of you may know him as the godfather of flexible dieting. He's coached hundreds of physique athletes to their uh, pro card, and he had a huge influence on names like Lane Norton, for which he helped become a coach himself. But to me, he's much more than just a diet coach. Joe is a great philosophical mind. He holds several graduate degrees, two of which are PhDs. He's written publications in the Huffington Post. He's written books on several topics. Uh, He has a podcast himself, and he has a great outlook on not just physique science and nutrition science and how to coach athletes, but just a great mind for philosophy and life in general. Uh, In this podcast, we talked about several topics ranging from COVID-19 to, of course, physique and training and uh, nutrition, but also philosophical topics such as the death, uh, fear of dying and and ego death and and all that kind of good stuff. And it's really the kind of discussion that I'm looking to have with my guests. So I really enjoyed this podcast. I know you guys are going to enjoy this podcast. So please welcome my guest, Dr. Joe Klimzeski. Yeah, well, you know, at least now, and this is why I agree that opening up is the right thing to do right now, because now we know the effect. Uh, there has been a peak. It's, it's not coming back down, but at least it's being sustained. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what this is. If, if you're at high risk or you're worried, then you can stay home. You do whatever it takes to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Those of us, like I've already had the virus. I gave it to my family. I brought it home oh, wow. from California in January. Like, you know, we're, we need to, we need to get back to work. We need to do stuff. So now's oh, wow. the time to make that transition, whether we're ready or not. I didn't know that. So you had the virus. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, I mean, did it, how did it affect you? Did you, did it feel any worse than a, a, a bad oh, flu? Or did it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, it was, what was really strange is the very first couple of cases in Los Angeles County happened when I was out there. Hmm. And yet we were still under the guise that, well, this is not even in the US yet, or it's just a couple cases, like it's fine. So going to LA with 21 million people, like there's no way I'm going to get this. Yet I came home and two days later, I'm like, gosh, I think I caught a cold. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty bad. The next day I'm like, oh, this is going to be a bad one. You just, you just feel that, you know? Yeah. And then for the next four to five days, I had a fever that wouldn't break. I mean, like just sweating all night, just bad. And I'm still not even thinking this is the coronavirus because there's just no way I would have caught it out there. Now we know it had been here since December and there were thousands of undiagnosed cases. So then I got the cough. I'm, I, I never get sick, Andre. I just, I just don't. If, if yeah. I have a cold, you would never even know it. And, and maybe I get a cold once a year. So then all of a sudden I get this cough that for three or four nights, I'm going through a whole bottle of NyQuil and, wow. and then the, the pneumonia hit, like I would walk up a flight of stairs and I would be like, Whew. you know, like I'm having to catch my breath after a flight of stairs and I've had pneumonia as an adult and I mm. knew that feeling. So still not knowing I had the virus, I had a physical, just my annual physical with my doctor. I had her listen to my lungs. I'm like, I think I've got pneumonia. Like, can you check and make sure? And she's like, well, yeah, there, you definitely have something, but it's probably, you know, as long as you're feeling better, your fever's coming down. 
she didn't think, I didn't think, nobody thought. It was only like a month later that I thought, holy shit, that was the coronavirus. Yeah. Gosh, that's crazy. Well, to be honest with you, um, I don't know if I had it or not, but there was a period. I went to a wedding in December and in about just about the end of December, early January, I got very sick myself. And I'm, I'm kind of like you. I don't get I get sick about once a year and it's usually in January. So I just thought it's probably my normal, you know, cold flu, whatever I get um, early on. That's what I thought. But uh, I got I got a lot more sick than I normally do this time around. And it was I had a cough, which I never get. Um, I had I had some trouble breathing. It didn't it didn't get any worse than that. Other than, you know, at night it would be like a um, kind of a thing where you you take a deep breath and you you have to cough. So I would be taking really shallow breaths because I didn't want to cough. And so um, that happened to me. It lasted a few weeks. The cough wouldn't go away for a few weeks. I'm not saying I had it. It's possible I did though, um, but yeah. nobody else that I, or my friend who went to the wedding too, he got just as sick, um, and a few other people at the wedding got sick as well in the same exact way. But my family didn't get sick, so who knows? Maybe it could have just been a bad flu. We don't know. Well, so here, here's what was funny is for a long time I, I still I said the same thing. I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But then yeah. I remember. Um, I, I spent an entire day with Brett Contreras. We're out drinking, we're having fun, we're eating, we're in bars, like screaming each other's ears. Mm. And um, Lauren Conlon and Paul Ravella, they always fly into San Diego, spend a couple of days with Brett, and then they all drive or take the train up to the LA Fit Expo. And, and Paul had told me, he's like, oh yeah, Brett was like coughing up a lung, like for two days, like I've never heard somebody cough so bad. He was so sick never even thought about it. Then, then I'm with Brett that whole, you know, next day. Oh, right. And I thought, wow, okay. I caught it from Brett. But then I found out that one of my friends from Idaho, her and her husband had actually genuinely tested positive for it. They, she was so sick before the LA Fit Expo. She almost didn't go. She decided to go ahead and go she sat beside me at the contest for half a day. So we're, we're breathing in each other's ears and faces. Mm -hmm. And she goes, she goes, yeah, I totally gave it to you. Sorry. Ouch. Like, she said, I didn't know what it was until I got back and we yeah. got tested and that's what it was. But she goes, I was, I was in the height of being symptomatic and transmissible. And I was with you that whole day. Yeah. So, could have been Brett, could have been her, could have been Who knows? the airport, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely the somewhere in that in that it could have been even somebody at the expo, right? It could have been right. a whole number of different ways. But well, definitely glad that you are okay now, and and um, that's scary that that you had to go through that. I'm sure you was scary in the moment for sure. Um, I, I didn't even know what it was. I just right. it was a, a weird cold. But. Right, that's true. That's true. Um, but to, to change topics and get on a on a, a better note, I guess. So uh, you, I wanted to talk to you um, because you are, in my opinion, one of the premier experts in the field of nutrition, um, training, um, all of these different areas of fitness that we're all very um, excited, or I personally am very excited about. Um, I obviously have a business myself as an online coach, and you sort of were the original guy who did all of this stuff. Is that correct? Uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing at the time or that anything would come of it, but I, I was in my, 
I'll go all the way back to my, my teen years. Sure. I was just lifting weights, trying to, tr trying to make an impact in my own physique. I was, I was kind of swept up into the, the eighties bodybuilding soap opera. So, you know, the, the kind of kid who's buying flex magazine at the newsstand, watching Lee Haney, Dorian Yates, all of the changes of guard. And it was fun for me. I was, I was really in it as, as a young kid lifting weights, trying to improve at baseball. And then when I got into college and out of college, I was, I was in over my head as a sport. And mm -hmm. so I was, uh, I was competing. I was, I was happy to uh, have found some, some natural drug-free organizations because my, my you know, short stint in the NPC was not uh, helping me fare very well. I, I wasn't even aware that there were different sanctions and different types of organizations. So ended up growing up through the WNBF world. I, I you know, finished my, my doctorate in nutrition, which was also just very, very self-fulfilling, was doing it for fun for my hobby of bodybuilding. Okay. Uh, I was working as an orthopedic physical therapist. That's what I thought I was going to spend my career doing. And uh, I, I had this opportunity. Once I had won my pro card and, and had finished my doctorate, a friend of mine gave me this opportunity to move to Evansville, Indiana, and to mm -hmm. buy a gym, small gym, and kind of transition into that, that life of entrepreneurship. So I, I clocked out of my orthopedic clinical physical therapy life moved to Evansville and all of a sudden I'm, I'm working with personal training type clients, gym members who are coming in to lose weight, to get in shape. They, they want the, the full uh, gamut that, that fitness can offer. And I, I had the knowledge to help them with nutrition, but there was no such thing as nutrition coaching. There was no mm -hmm. model for this. You were a registered dietitian working in a school cafeteria or a hospital or you owned a Weight Watchers franchise, but there was absolutely zero model for nutrition information or education. So I, I started cobbling together things that I would think people would need to know. Like if you want to lose weight, here's what we should consider. And, and I started breaking food down into macronutrients. That was, that was mm -hmm. the first real contribution I made, Andre, that I, I didn't even know I was doing at the time. I, I didn't think that would become a thing. But it seemed logical to me to help people break their calories down into macronutrients so they could then choose the foods they wanted. Right. And, you know, without calling it flexible dieting, without calling it macro based dieting or anything, that's just what I did. It worked so well that as I started writing for fitness magazines, that became the subject matter for a lot of my writing. And now all of a sudden, because th those magazines are being read by bodybuilders around the world, uh, that kind of launched me into a little bit of a, of a national spotlight where I was being invited to speak at fitness camps, bodybuilding camps. And, and that's where this all started. That's so awesome. So essentially, you stumbled into this world by uh, sort of uh, exploring your own uh, you know, exploring nutrition on your own, just as a hobby, just out of your own curiosity, and then just maybe starting to help a few people out around the gym that you were involved with. And then it kind of blossomed into something even beyond yourself, I guess, as this whole revolution of counting your macros and online coaching kind of sprang from that moment, maybe not to say that there weren't other people somewhere in the world who might have had the same idea you did, but essentially your spark 
kind of caught the wildfire that then spread across the fitness industry, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely understand that there's a, a sense of wherever culture is, that there is that phenomena of collective consciousness. And, oh, sure. and you, you might not be the only person having a certain idea. But uh, the interesting thing was that the bodybuilding community at that time was far, far different. I mean, I mean, think about all of the guys like you and, and uh, you know, the coaches who have come up. Uh, everybody getting their their bachelor's in exercise science and their master's and their PhDs and people like Dr. Jer Jeremy Lenicky and Helms and Lane, everybody j just kind of taking over this field. None of that existed 25 years ago. It just did not exist. Yeah. So at 25 years old, after, you know, even before I had won my pro card, just because I was competing in this small drug-free organization based in New York, all of a sudden they had talked me into promoting shows. And now at 24, 25 years old, I'm promoting shows and I'm interested in my own career. And I got to see some phenomenal bodybuilders and meet some legends like, like Dave Gooden and, you know, so many other of the early, you know, just top, top bodybuilders. And I got to interview them and talk to them and, and what do you do and all this. And, and that's what really gave me that fire for learning. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what made me want to continue my education purely for, you know, the silly little hobby of bodybuilding that now turned into all of this. So you have the degree in physical therapy. That was the first one, correct? You got the second degree, which was the doctorate, and that was in nutrition, right? It was, it was a combination master's and doctorate in nutrition Okay. that I, I, I really started right after physical therapy school. As soon as I graduated from PT school, I immediately studied for and got my CSCS, mm -hmm. um, you know, from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And then I was just, I was in that mode, man. I was just learning, learning, learning. And I thought, man, what else can I learn? Let, let me take a class in nutrition. Let me do this. And it's like, well, let me just keep going. And, and again, just never, ever intended on using that for anything. But then I got that opportunity to move to Evansville and open a gym. And then I won my pro card. And then it just all kind of congealed. Wow. Um, and by now, you have more degrees now, right? I think you you... You have a couple more master's degrees that you've racked up along the way. Yeah. So, so once, once I was kind of entrenched in my gym and we were growing that, I had probably a dozen part-time and full-time personal trainers and a gym manager. We had started a sports supplement company. So I had half a dozen or so employees and partners with that. And, um, yeah, that was just, that's all I ever thought I would do. But I was also still writing. So all of the, the writing I was doing for fitness magazines, I, I decided I needed to put this together for a book. And, and it was really going to be kind of a, a self-published book just to give clients and say, here's everything you need to know. Just a, a way to organize information. But then I thought, okay, that's a, that's a great first draft. I think this kind of material is, is marketable. So one of my clients at the time, a personal client, was a medical doctor, a primary care physician. And he was kind of a writing nerd. He was the you know, editor of his high school newspaper, college, and all that good stuff. So he said, man, I would love to co-write a book with you. So we co-wrote a book. We ended up finding a, a pretty, pretty solid small press publisher. And I thought, you know, if, I, if I'm going to continue this route in writing, I, I really want to get more of a terminal degree in a broader field in, in health. So I ended up through my mid and late thirties doing a second PhD in health education. So a lot of physicians like him 
it was very in vogue for them as a medical doctor to go get a master's in public health, you know, get an MPH, because that kind of sets you apart as somebody who, yes, you're a doctor, a physician, but you also know about public health. So I, I thought, you know, that's kind of what I want to do as well. And, and I can, I'll, I'll just do this PhD and it was, it was fun. So I did that really for publishing reasons. But then, as you said, later on, just for personal interest, I, I did a master's in uh, social science writing, really uh, literary journalism is called creative nonfiction. And now I'm uh, finishing up a master's in, in social psychology. So that'll be a total of five graduate degrees by the time you're done with this one? Uh, yes. So most of us, like me, um, I guess mere mortals, I could you could say we're happy with the one graduate degree, but it seems like you just have continued to learn and your avenue of learning just happened to coincide with continuing in a formal education, getting degrees. Some people maybe take certifications, do master classes, things like that. But you've sort of seemed to stick to that whole traditional um, education route for all of the learning that you continue to do. Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons I do that, Andre, and I would say you as a, a very accomplished strength coach, you and I coach people, people mm -hmm. hire us, and we know information is free. People could go online and they could get information, so why do they hire a coach? Yeah. They hire a coach for the experience, for the collective experience and all the education of that person. So here's what happens to me. If, if I'm not in a formal learning track i go home you know I, I just keep working i drag my laptop out i work i work i work i made it go to bed and i'm flipping through news and, and i'm just i, I kind of go in cruise control mode but if i have a class guess what i'm reading i'm reading all the books that i need to read for that class and even though i could do the same thing recreationally it's not the same you don't have all of that guy like my professors right now you've got people who have been in their field for 30 40 years they are experts i'm not just reading a book i'm getting all of their experience poured into me and i really love that there are, are outcomes that i wouldn't accomplish otherwise so you know for example a, a master's thesis you're literally writing a book that you could publish mm -hmm. a, a doctoral dissertation you're 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 paving a way for new avenues to research you're not going to just do that on your own in your living room without without that kind of input. So I, I don't I, I do it slowly. You know, I'm, I'm, I take a class at a time. Um, I don't have any particular goal or pace, but it's it's just fun for me. It's 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 what keeps me mentally in fifth gear. And that's how I like to experience life. So it's almost uh, for lack of a better term, it's almost like you, you've hacked You've hacked the system by, um, you. It's not really a hack, but you've you've uh, found a way to keep yourself engaged in learning the material, and it keeps you on track because you are doing it in a very structured way with professors, where you are accountable to the syllabus, you're accountable to the assignments you have to complete, you're accountable to all of the deadlines that have to be met with with these courses, um, and so otherwise, it may have taken you three, four, five times as long to learn the information that you're learning in these classes and in these degrees. Um, and so for you personally, that's that's the best way you found to do it. And also, um, even though it may cost out of pocket for you to do it, it's worth the trade off in the amount of dedication and the amount that you get from it. Yeah, I'm going to do something with that time. And sure. th th there's literally nothing, Andre, that I don't like about it. I, I remember so vividly 
when I was in Connecticut on campus for my Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, and I'm sitting around this room with 40 other people who are from all walks of life. Some are high school teachers, college teachers. One guy was the chief of homicide of the Oakland Police Department. You know, one guy was a, a major architect in New York City. One person already has an incredible reputation as a mystery writer. And, and as we're sitting around, I, I thought, these are the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Like you could go around that room and like, I am the dumbest person in this room. Like there is like, these are amazing human beings. And there's that, that utopic feeling. Like the first time I show up on Harvard's campus and I'm walking around looking at these buildings, going in the bookstore, I'm like, wow, like there's, there is just nothing that I don't like about school and the experience it's the learning it's it's like you said that the challenge the motivation the syllabus uh if if i had another hobby like uh you know if, if guitar was a higher <laughs> priority you know i would probably be doing that i would right. be sitting at the feet of masters learning that but uh this is my main hobby that's amazing that's really great and um i i have definitely seen that in my own life is just um when i was in my master's degree and then the phd program that was when i was the most immersed in what i was learning and it does become a little bit more challenging after you are out of that environment to push yourself to the same level to learn as much as you were learning then and uh because things come up right it's like you said it, it it's a lot easier when you're not accountable to something to just, you know, mess around on your phone, uh, reading the news or playing a game on the whatever, you know, on Facebook or something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's something that I've considered going back to school, learning just uh, different things that I, I do know, but I haven't had a formal education in. Right. So something like, um, you know, getting I, I did start a PhD, but I, I didn't finish the PhD, but maybe going back and finishing that, even if it's little by little, I think that I got into a I got into a mindset where it was either full on doing the PhD 100 percent, like full class load, uh, you know, get this done in four years or nothing. But um, the approach you've taken, I think that I've heard before is maybe you only take one class at a time. Um, and even though it takes you a lot longer to finish it, it's just you're still finishing it. And, and it's not only finishing it, but it's 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 the the journey. It's, it's right. the fun. So when I. Um, Interestingly, when I chose to go to Harvard for <clears throat> my master's in social psych, I was debating between doing a PhD <clears throat> in creative nonfiction. There was only one college in the country, and it's a research university called Ohio University. Hmm. So small town, Athens, Ohio. But they required a year and a half of living on campus to teach. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to be able to do that. So, so I'll, I'll put that to the side. I won't do the PhD in writing. I'll do my master's in social psych. Because I really wanted to write anyway. I wanted, I wanted that mentorship in writing to write a book in the realm of social psychology. So I'll just go get a master's in social psych. Harvard's extension school requires you to go you know, halfway through the master's program. And then you've got to take three courses online. And I thought, you know, I can do that. At the time, I was thinking I'll kind of stack up the classes, even if I have to fly in and out of Boston just once a week for a semester, like I can do that. Well, it came time and I could not do that. 
work and family and other obligations as you know, two years had passed. I, I had done all of the coursework and I'm like, gosh, I just can't do it. So I took a semester off. Maybe, maybe I'll be able to another semester off, another semester off. Finally, I realized I just can't do it. I, I literally have to just say, I'm glad I had that experience, but for me to finish this degree, I'm going to have to transfer out. And so uh, out of a couple different options, that same University of Ohio had a master's that was very complimentary. So I transferred there and now where I was going to do a PhD in creative nonfiction, now I'm doing the PhD in social psych. But but to your your point, you know, plans change, you know, you had to stop your PhD for a while, you you just kind of reroute and say, okay, now, now this is the best option for me, even if it's a little bit at a time. I think it's it's well worth the journey. Well, it gives me some hope that I that I'll still finish it one day because uh, I think I think being that uh, I'm still relatively young, you know, when you're when you're in your 20s, you have this sense of in, like everything has to be done immediately because you're running out of time. But really, you have more time than you think, and um, all of that stuff is still there. And, and like you said, um, maybe that degree that uh, you said it was at Ohio University. Maybe that degree didn't exist a couple of years ago, and now you're at a different place in the journey, and the the degree does exist now, and so now it's a better time for you to actually finish that. Um, So there's a testament to slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah, and and I would encourage you in this way, Andre, just on a personal note. I I know it's 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 pretty it's pretty cliche right now to say ah formal education you don't need it you don't need it look you, you know Bill Gates Zuckerberg Elon Musk you can you can go make it on your own without college. Uh, you can, you can, but there is such a difference in, in who you are as a person. And, and I've got a great example. Corey Probst, she had a master's degree in counseling. Her bachelor's was in exercise physiology, and she was working for us at the diet doc. And she was contemplating, do I get my PhD? Do I become an actual clinical you know, health psychologist or not? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of work. And I said, man, you just knowing what you want to do with your career, you have to do it. I, I really encourage you to do it. So she, she did it. And I'm telling you, Andre, she is a different person. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was a good counselor before. She's a hardworking human being. Five years of working through a PhD program with the mentors, the professors, the influences she had, the, 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 the dissertation board, like she is a totally different person. You, you don't just earn that degree. You become a different person. As I said, all of those people who pour all of their life's experience and work into you, you that is not replaceable. That You can't do that on your own. I think for every Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, there are thousands of people who are not as successful, right? I mean, millions of people who aren't as successful with the same level of education. So it's very easy for us to look at the shining examples of what can be done without the education, but not all of us are super geniuses or are going to hit that that lucky, there's a little bit of luck involved sometimes with, with what they come up with at the right time. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, I have four children and not all of them are excited about school. They don't share the same interests or passions I do, but that is one of the things I tell them. I I will support you a hundred percent in anything you want to do, but just remember 30, 40, 50 years is a long time. And this is where you can get a foundation 
and even something, I mean, I, I think the bachelor's degree is the hardest degree to go through because mm -hmm. it's, it's just a long time and it's a lot of workload and all kinds of eclectic different classes that you may not even like. But once you get that done, statistically, only a third of people in, in the US have bachelor's degree and over the course of their lives, they make twice as much money. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy we have electricians and plumbers and, and mechanics and people who don't necessarily need a college degree, but this is your entire life. So whether you're going to invest it in a skill, becoming a nurse, becoming an engineer or something else, you know, you gotta, you gotta prepare for the results of that decision. And this is your chance to, to study and do exactly what you want. How have you managed all of this? You just mentioned having the kids. You mentioned, and if I look behind you, you have several companies that you've been running all along, and I'm, I'm assuming uh, taking those in stride with your education at the same time. I think that I personally am very interested, and I hope that listeners are interested in maybe getting some tips of how you were able to manage all of these things and still come out the other side flourishing, sane, and so on and so forth. Well, there, there definitely is a time uh, that, you know, you, you, I, I, I would describe that I, I had to bow out of certain parts of my life. For example, when I, when I said, I've got to take it, take a time out, I can't finish this master's right now. I need a year, year and a half. And, and rearing children was the same. Uh, I, I heard something and, and it, being a parent, being a father was always the most important role for me. I, I took that very seriously. It was very intentional. I have an entire bookshelf full of parenting books. Matter of fact, the master's thesis I wrote in my creative nonfiction degree was on the fatherhood role in, in current contemporary culture. And, uh, and so there was a time when I would not take any travel you know, during the summer. And I, I had a rule of only traveling once a month. And so I would do that and, and I could stay home and I've, you know, my, my kids have even told me at this point, one of the things they value most about growing up with me, all of my children are adults now, is that I was always there. I went to every ball game. I went to every piano recital. I was there after school. I was there to help them with homework. My, my daughter, who is a senior in high school right now, uh, you know, will joke sometimes because when she's writing an English paper, it's like, we are writing this English paper. Like, dad's going to help me. Dad's going to edit this. So, so I, there were costs. I would say business growth and business opportunities that I would say no to because that's when I was actively parenting. Now that my kids are all that old, I'm kind of stepping on the gas again with, with my business and company and retooling some things. But I, I will say to directly answer your question, how do I do it? There, there's definitely no fluff. Um, when I was going through school, that, that first doctoral program, and working in my new physical therapy career and you know having my first couple of children being born there's a period in the 90s where like i couldn't even name a a 90s song or band because i was just checked out of society to to some degree i mean i don't want to make it sound like i was a recluse but i mean your priorities are your priorities nirvana and, nirvana just to help you out next time you get that question give me one i can yeah <laughs> I, I can't actually play the bass chord to there you go team spirit so you heard it you just didn't know what it was <laughs> I, I heard it after the 90s it was like right. it was like 20 years later that i i learned it yeah that's great 
I, it's, it's a testament to, to be, I always like to learn from people that are farther along the journey than I am. I'm, I sort of look at myself as I'm looking up at the peak from the bottom of the mountain. And I'd like to get advice from those who are closer to the top of the mountain than I am. And you're certainly one of those people. And you touched on this earlier about how all of this education um, is useful for you yourself as a professional. And you touched a little bit about how um, there's so much free information on the internet um, that people can learn either to be a coach themselves or to coach themselves um, and not have to hire a coach. But you mentioned that there is this, um, you know, value in hiring somebody who is farther along the process, has all the experience, formal and otherwise, um, to, to help you reach your goals. So I'd like to expand on that a little bit and maybe talk a few more reasons. Why should somebody hire a coach? What are the specific things that they should be looking for in a coach as opposed to just doing it by themselves and not having that helping hand? Yeah. And I love the fact that now we have so many options. I I was a little bit insecure and somewhat miffed when when the explosion of nutrition and contest pro coaches came about because I was I didn't even know I was really creating a wake for an entire industry. I the very first client that hired me uh, it was in 1998 for uh, you know a, a friend of mine's first pro show and that was successful. I helped him win his class at his pro show. And then I was writing articles about that. And, and I put an ad in this magazine in, in like 2001, a little third page ad, contest peaking specialist, just thinking mm -hmm. maybe maybe this would be a thing. Like maybe somebody would actually hire me, little side gig, it'll be fun. I'm excited about it. And uh, and so, you know, I don't know if you know this story, Lane, I know you know Lane Norton very well, but he's mm -hmm. also from Evansville, Indiana. So one day when he was 18 or 19 years old, he contacted me, came to my office, and he wanted me to help him for a bodybuilding show. And and he just, in the middle of our exchange, he's like, I, I want to do what you do. Like, how do you become a coach for bodybuilders? And I'm, you know, my first thought was, what, is that what I am? Like, I'm running a company, I own a supplement company, I own a gym, I do this on the side for fun. But I said, I, I guess, because there is no such thing, you know, you should go to school because I have education in this. And I, I think taking somebody's nutrition on is, is somewhat of an allied health role. I mean, that's, that's why legally you have to be a registered dietitian or a medical doctor to do that, even though some of those laws are evolving now. Right. So I said, go to school. So then of course, Lane goes and gets his PhD and he's a coach. Well, all of a sudden, then you see these people becoming coaches who have zero education. And I, I thought that was incredibly naive, not only illegal, but potentially dangerous. And uh, so I really resisted that and fought that for a long time. Well, now flash forward 15 or 20 years, you have all kinds of certifications, some of which I have created and managed. And uh, you have all of these, these ways to create knowledge outside of becoming a registered dietitian. And now there are some extremely, exceptionally gifted, talented people who are coaching. And so I'll often tell some of my clients, matter of fact, I just had somebody contact me and say, I've worked with this coach, this coach, and this coach. You know my goals. Who do you think I should work with next? 
And their whole goal in, a, in asking that question is, I want to broaden my experience. I want to, I want to know and learn from somebody else. What's the next best step for me. And I, and I love that that is available now. And the coaches that I want to see succeed are the ones that take this profession that seriously, that they know they are part of an allied health team that has true health and medical responsibility. Somebody looking for a coach, excuse me, <clears throat> Somebody looking for a coach then or somebody who is looking to make a change in their nutrition or their lifestyle um, should look to somebody who is a professional in this arena, whether that be a registered dietitian, a PhD, a medical doctor who specializes in nutrition, something like that. Um, but they shouldn't just pick any old person that they find, they should do their homework, they should um, investigate how passionate that person is, whether or not they're continuing their education like you are, or it, whether it be in a formal sense, or whether it be in continuing to get certifications or things like that. That's kind of what I'm hearing from you, as far as why somebody should, um, why somebody should choose to put their own nutrition in somebody else's hands. Um, what about from the aspect of, um, you know, maybe just it, it can be hard to look at yourself objectively, right? It could be hard to make decisions for yourself without second guessing them and without uh, feeling like you're making the wrong decision. Do you feel like that's maybe one of the more important or one of the more beneficial things of having a coach? For sure. And and that's why I've, I've kind of softened my stance where now I know because of all the resources around us, there are, are plenty of coaches that may not even have a bachelor's degree in exercise science or something like that, but they've spent five, 10, 15 years studying this on their own. They've had the experience. Uh, they are often very much associated or tied with, with other great coaches. Uh, you know, inside of our company, the diet doc, we have licensed program owners, a very serious franchising model. We also have the National Academy of Metabolic Science where we certify, where we take people through this curriculum process and then they, they go through case studies and a proctored examination. And then you know, we have the, the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind, which is kind of a top level way of getting just the, the pinnacle of information from the top experts in the world. So as long as a coach is tied in to resources like that, and preferably if they have some kind of literal physical mentor that they can ask questions and so forth. Like in our own company, you know, we have a, a medical director, a physician who is there when we need her expertise. But for the reason you just said of just, just having an objective eye, somebody who's good, who can come alongside you, that's why anybody needs a coach. You know, that's, that's why a PGA golfer still has a coach or a tennis player has a coach or an NBA basketball player has a, a you know, a, a, an endurance coach, a strength coach, a performance coach. I, I think it's incredibly valuable. My, my very last year competing as a pro bodybuilder, I, I, I had a kind of a board. I had some friends that I would kind of run my plan by, would run my, my progress by, I would run my progress pictures by, and we would all kind of collaborate and they would give me their opinion. So instead of me just, just giving myself over and following somebody, I even wanted a little bit of a, of a deeper perspective with some breadth. And uh, I mean, that's, that's the way you get better. You, you learn from other people and, and you let them check your blind spots. That's a great point. I know that me personally, I'm um, somebody who tends to 
have a little bit of trouble reaching out for help, if I'm honest. Uh, I, I like to take things into my own hands and, and control things a lot more. But I have had coaches in the past. And I would say that I, I grew more during those times when I had a coach than I did at any other point in time. And, and that's not just a nutrition coach or a fitness coach. I consider my professors my coaches. I consider my mentors my coaches all the same, whether it be in life or in anything I do. So definitely it is invaluable to have that as you have continued to see with your education. One thing that I am interested in is there is all of this individualization around nutrition, whether that be a registered dietitian who can write a meal plan for somebody for a specific health outcome, whether that be um, a, you know a contest prep coach who is specifying macros and looking at the kind of foods that somebody is eating to make sure they're not maybe going too far one way or the other with their habits. Um, but it may not necessarily always be the same when it comes to training programs. Um, I tend to find that people um, maybe don't put as much weight into the the need for individualization with training programs or the need for a properly programmed, um, you know, uh, training sessions. And they'll just pick something off the Internet or something like that, or they look for the free options or whatever the case may be. What are your philosophies around you know, developing training programs? Obviously, you have your background in physical therapy, which is very much about assessing the client and very much about giving the clients or the patients what they need. Um, how do you do you, in your practice? I know that you don't necessarily coach a ton of people anymore. I don't, I don't know if you coach at all, but how did you approach training programs or how how do you advise, uh, you know, the people that you mentor on how to go about training programs? I'm glad you asked this. I know this is your whole forte. This is your business in, in a very specific way. It was my first love. I mean, I remember being a teenager and, and scouring over the magazines. I would, I would train in my high school. This, this is pretty progressive in the 80s, but we had a, a bodybuilding and fitness elective. So we would lift weights Monday, Wednesday, Friday, run Tuesday, Thursday. On the days we weren't training, I would immediately go to the YMCA on my way home from school and train. And if I had to miss a workout anywhere else, I had weights in my bedroom. I would be lifting at 10 o'clock at night after work. I mean, I just could not get enough. And, and to me, the original precept I had or the most foundational was how do you maximize effort? How do I get the absolute most work in every single workout, but still be able to recover for the next one? I didn't even know where I got this. It had to be some kind of amalgamation of the weeder principles at the time or something. But I remember doing things like, okay, if I want to train chest two days a week or three days a week, I, you know, I kind of do lower chest this day and kind of upper chest that day because it's not as sore. The rotator cuffs aren't, aren't as fatigued or maybe I'm doing fly motions here, pressing. But I'm just I'm, I'm doing all of this, my, my own little game of periodization. And as that continued through physical therapy school, college, you know, kind of the whole pre-med route, you're taking physiology courses. In physical therapy school, I'm taking biomechanics courses and things very much in line with functional anatomy. So I got much better at refining those movements and my reasons why. And of course, then I became involved in the NSCA. So I'm, I'm going through their, their journal that's coming out every month and all of this research. So I wrote more articles back then about training than I did nutrition, Andre. And I, I loved it. I still do. I, I have clients I coach for contest prep. 
and every once in a while they need some training help. So I'll, I'll give them a program, a protocol. Like you said, I'm, I'm refining it to what they need, but that is a pure joy for me. And that is still my first love. It was my first love. It's still my greatest love because as soon as we're done with this, this interview, I'm going down to my gym to train. Like same here. I, I have not competed in 16 years, but I will not miss a workout. And I'm still just as amped up and excited as I was when I was 12 years old. And uh, so I, I respect you for everything that you bring to the industry because your seriousness and your expertise is definitely helping a lot of people manage all of those variables and, and maximize their potential. I get the sense sometimes that, you know, maybe this is how you felt early on with your philosophies around nutrition is those weren't the popular opinions. Those weren't the agreed upon opinions, right? People at the time still thought that, you know, you had to eat certain foods, certain certain meal plan in order to get in shape for a bodybuilding contest. And then here you come saying, hey, there's something a little bit deeper going on here. There's certain macronutrients and the certain calories that come out of these foods. And as long as you're hitting those and keeping things, you know, more or less uh, responsible with your food choices, we're going to be okay, right? Um, I feel that's that's sort of where training programs are still sometimes where people feel that, uh, you know, what's the point of being so specific with, you know, what's the difference between a, uh, a standard dumbbell bench press and say, uh, you know, a single arm dumbbell bench press, or how is that carry over into this sport versus this sport? You know, I think people aren't quite as uh, open to being being um, so detailed about that kind of stuff just yet. And so I'm hoping, at least on my end, that I can be the person or one of the people, just like yourself, who can bring that to prominence in the, in the coming years and really show that, you know, people that are writing training programs online can be respected just the same way that people like yourself who, who, who are helping people with their nutrition can also be respected. But I don't think it's quite there yet. I think nutrition is still something that people are um, much more willing to pay for, like expertise-wise, as opposed to the training program. Because And maybe that is because there's just so much out there right now and it's hard for them to sift through. Well, you, you definitely have an opportunity to make it known that that's not quite the case. And, and, and I will say this, I completely agree a lot of people come to me looking for contest prep coaching and they just assume that you just kind of throw on the training as an aside. Well, like, where's my workout plan? Well, you didn't, you didn't select that. Like that's a whole different service. We have a couple, you know, a couple people in our company who do that, our training director, our assistant training director, but they're just used to coaches who just throw them templates. Like, well, here's something you can do. And it's, they're just incredibly generic and you know, 500 of their clients are doing the same things. And, and I'm like, yeah, that, that takes a little bit more work. Like, like yeah. the amount of work it takes to manage your training is the same amount of work and attention it takes to manage your nutrition. And that's just, you, you need an expert in that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I said uh, people who, who you know, kind of have their training legs under them and they just need some variety, I'll, I'll help them. But if they really need training help, I absolutely refer them to an expert.
And the interplay between those two, right? When somebody is dieting um, and especially getting close to contest uh, contest shape, you know, there's maybe a little bit different way that we have to periodize things and program things because they can't recover as well when they're 5 10% body fat than they were when they were 15 20% body fat and not in a caloric deficit. So there's a lot that goes into that. And I think that from what I see is because there are so much of that, there's so much of that um, belief that, oh, they're going to provide me with that training program. It's like a tag on to the nutrition program that when they see maybe someone like myself or there's a bunch of coaches that do what I do, but they see maybe the price that's being charged for a training program, they think, why would I pay somebody that much money for a training program? Because they're used to getting those, I guess you would say, subpar products from other coaches that they might have had in the past. And or maybe they've experienced a coach that does what I like to call fake individualization, where it's it seems like they're individualizing things, but really they're just plugging them into a template anyways. And what they're really changing is like, oh, this person's one rep max is 300 pounds. So the percentages look different, like the numbers look different, but it's really just all the same calculation. Yeah. If I could, for your listeners and viewers, I would say What's incredibly important about this, and this is a mantra that I tell all of my business development coaches, you have to understand this. It's, it's the one principle that is defining this period of time. People do not pay for information. They pay for experience and expertise. Yep. So yes, I can go download 500 training programs as soon as we're done here, and I could go try them all but it's the assessment, it's the monitoring, it's the, the Q&A, it's, the, it's the, the fine tuning and refinement of, of a personal coach who gets to know your body, your genetics, your performance, your, your uniqueness, all the way to past medical history things, orthopedic things, movement patterns that are different just based on your, your lever lengths and, and, and genetic movement patterns. You're, you just you, you don't even know those things exist until you work with a coach who has the experience in that. And so the ability to take somebody to a level of maximum performance with safety and efficiency, that's what you pay for. It's not the programming. It's not the, it's not the numbers on a, on a spreadsheet. It's, it's that entire coaching relationship. There's certainly levels to everything. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about dry aging beef. Uh, what does that have to do with any of this? Not much. But what I want to get at is just the level of detail that the guy was explaining things on for something that seems as simple as aging beef and cooking it, right? He was talking about the humidity that he keeps his dry age room at, the, the, the amount of air that has to circulate throughout the room in order to keep that beef, that fine line between the beef going rotten and spoiled and aging the beef to bring out more flavor. How many days is he going to age? the beef for? Well, it depends. He's constantly sampling that beef to make sure that he doesn't overage the beef, but also not underage the beef. When he cooks it, what temperature is he cooking it at? What, you know, there's all these different details that go into it that on the surface, somebody myself who's very ignorant to that, I have no idea how, what goes into that. I just think dry aged beef is dry aged beef, right? So I think the same thing exists with everything. When it comes to nutrition, there's certainly people that think nutrition program, what's the best 
best one for losing fat. Okay, I'm going to get this one off of Google and this is going to work for me. Um, same thing with the training program. So I like the way you put it where it, it takes – it's going to take them having their eyes opened to what really goes into a high-quality program in, in anything in order for them to know the difference. And going more, sort of exploring that a little bit further, you know, you see a lot of times with uh, nutrition, calories in, calories out. When it comes to training programs, you need progressive overload. You need to periodize things. And sometimes people um, either don't understand that completely or they start to dig their heels in the mud that that's those are the overarching principles. Therefore, that is the only thing that matters. What other factors in your years and years of experience, have you seen, not discounting the importance of those things, but have you seen that are very important and make a huge difference in the success of anybody trying to achieve a goal in fitness? Well, you know, the interesting thing, like I keep coming back to, is the fact that the whole realm of, of nutrition coaching, personal nutrition, biochemistry, uh, the the exercise science world, it, it's just not even fathomable where it's gone in the last 25 years. So when I, when I started speaking with Mike Zordos and I started watching Brad Schoenfeld's research come out, uh, I, I too was a little bit, you know, hesitant and saying, well, I don't know. I mean, how, how much validity can you put into studies where you're always undermanned with the subjects? You, you can never use the amount of time that you would like. You're not doing five year studies or two year studies. You can't control all the, these variables. But you, you start getting this, this just compendium of research and just month after month, all of these, these studies being published, you can learn a ton. And, and I would say that the things that have surprised me on the training side are that, again, my, my earliest days were all about maximum effort, maximum intensity that you can manage per workout and then with enough time to recover. So when you look at a classic kind of training adaptation, X, Y axis, and it's like, okay, if your training stimulus is driving you into this level of need for recovery, it's going to take you much longer to recover before you can train again. Well, you start thinking about reps in reserve and perceived effort and well, how do I actually sneak in a second or a third workout without overtraining, you know, that particular week. And in the studies that Schoenfeld and Zordos have done on looking at, you know, the, the actual work, if you look at it from a physics perspective, the amount of work done in a week, there are definite parameters to what's the maximum load with recovery as a risk, you know, cost benefit ratio. And then how do you manipulate those variables? You know, how do you, what do you put in those workouts and how do you make sure you're not overlapping where you shouldn't and you are where you should? it really has brought in a much more scientific and to your point, personalized need to manage all those variables. It's not just smashing a workout and then getting enough rest that you can, you can do better than that. So it's really been fun. It's just, we're, we're digging deeper and deeper and we're finding these nuances and now we get to apply them to you know, different people with different contexts. What role have you seen psychology, emotions, things of that nature play, especially on the nutrition side of things for people um, that maybe prevents them from being, being as successful as they possibly could be, you know, despite the fact that you're giving them the right prescriptions of macros and, and, and so on and so forth? How big of a role has that 
played in a lot of the clients that you've worked with and all of the clients that other diet doc franchisees have worked with. It's funny you bring this up because I, I just posted a video today on social media about the, the underlying psychological needs. And this is, it, it's interesting. The very first manager of my gym, when I moved to Evansville, Indiana, dragged a friend down here with me. He was a guy that had a bachelor's degree in psychology and he was on his way to becoming a counselor. I've always had two or three very close friends who are mental health therapists or psychologists. And the amount that I've learned from them, it, it, it's a very interesting journey because you don't know what you don't know. And every once in a while, they'll drop a concept and you're like, wait, explain that again. Mm -hmm. And you'll, you'll start to unravel that and think, yeah, holy shit, you just describe me to a T and I need to do that or I need to stop that or something. And it's a concept you didn't even know existed five minutes earlier, and yet it can completely change your life. So just like we're talking about nutrition and training, mindset and motivation and the underlying incentives we all have as people, the, the three basic psychological needs as described in self-determination theory, which is Dr. Corey Probst's uh, just, just eminent field of study and, and her biggest interest, uh, you know, those things matter. So as a coach, if you're just working on the surface of a human being, it's transactional. They say, hey, I'm paying you to be a coach. Okay, here's your coaching and we'll just do this thing. You know, I don't know, you're, you're probably going to hit some roadblocks that you could have overcome a lot easier if you understood those deepest incentives. And uh, as I mentioned in my video today, you know, what is even a reparative process? If somebody's coming to you because they want to lose weight or they want to increase their fitness, why? Is it to look better? Is it to feel better? What part of themselves are they unsatisfied with that they think they need some work to become more whole? That is a psychological premise. You're, you're, you're giving them the tools, but if you're not meeting them in those layers of the perceived need, there's, there's going to be a lot of missed opportunity. It's true. And what about when it comes to food choices. So we touched on the calories in, calories out just a bit ago. And with flexible dieting, it became very popular for a while there where it became the IIFYM um, strategy of I can if I if it fits, I can eat whatever I want, which is certainly true to a certain degree. But how big of an impact have you seen food choices make in the success of people? Maybe maybe and I, I'm not sure how many general population people you work with as opposed to contest prep. But um, how about on both sides? Uh, how big of a, of, of a how big of an impact does it make on people who are trying to step on stage? And then also, how big of an impact does that have on people who are just trying to be as healthy as they possibly can be? Really, really glad you brought this up. It's, it's kind of a hot topic again, because I see the pendulum kind of swinging in the mm -hmm. other direction right now. And, and when I came up with this concept of flexible dieting, it was not so that you could pile in as much garbage food as you wanted, as long as it fit a mathematical equation. It was just to have flexibility. I, you know, if, if a a friend of mine who was helping me with my nutrition as a very young novice amateur bodybuilder, he would just give me Xeroxes of Flex magazine articles, you know, eat this. And it was just the old, you know, Vic Richards, Chris Aceto kind of stuff, just rice, chicken, green beans. And, it, you know, my maybe curious or rebellious brain was like, well, what if I don't want that food? Like, what if I want this? And 
he would say, no, you can't eat it because it's not on that list. I'm like, well, why not? It's just calories. It's just protein, carbs, and fat. So I started just making up my own formulas. It was it, it, it translated into the, the, the numerical language. So it was no longer like one protein source or this many ounces of protein. It was grams of protein, the units of energy. And, but it wasn't to just eat shitty food. And so when the whole IIFYM crowd came along and started just bragging about how many Pop-Tarts they can eat and how many <laughs> donuts. And look, I went a whole contest prep and I only ate pizza. Like, okay, is that what you wanted? I mean, are you, are you healthy? Is that helping you somehow? And so even to this day, I tell people, hey, it's, it's all about structure first. You need structure. If you're going to build a wall, you need bricks, you need blocks. That's structure. That's having a meal plan that you like. That's your home base. The mortar is the flexibility. You need both. You can't build a wall. You can't build a foundation with just rigid meal planning or just flexibility. You need structure and flexibility. So I, I started coining this phrase several years ago, structured flexibility. And you can be flexible, but you need, you need both. And so uh, now I see an awful lot of coaches talking all about structure and they're, they're almost kind of poo-pooing flex, flexible dieting saying that's a horrible word. That's a horrible concept. They're kind of lumping that into it. And now they're just calling it something else, but it was the original intent of having principled quality structure and the ability to intelligently be flexible where you need or you want. It's a great way to put it because uh, you can certainly be too rigid, which is what people found with meal plans that were like what you were seeing that you what meat, what do you mean? I have to just eat these foods. If you had stuck to that um, 100%, you maybe would have had a, uh, you know, a point where you couldn't take it anymore and you completely went off the rails, which I think has happened to a lot of people time and time again, and is maybe uh, how people started swinging the other way towards flexible dieting because the natural tendency when they figure out that something else works is they take that to the extreme. And then at a certain point, they realize, oh, wait a minute, I think we got a little bit too far. They start to swing it back towards the middle and eventually it's structure, you know, it kind of settles in that moderate range. But perhaps on that swing back towards the other side is when you start getting the whole poo-pooing of flexible dieting and things like that. But I think all along, it just got taken out of context. Your message was, let's, let's figure out a way to make this a little bit more palatable and a little bit more sustainable for the long term, as opposed to boxing yourself into one strategy or the other. Yeah. And, and going back to collective consciousness, I, I'm, I, I always laugh when I see major players in the industry reacting to things that we've already been doing for 10 or 20 years. And a major diet company right now on TV, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar company, their whole tagline is, you know, don't, don't, don't count and track and measure food. Who's got time for that ridiculousness? Just buy our food, you know, spend 200 bucks a week and let us send you these, these frozen meals. Um, but they're reacting on that pendulum. Like everybody's talking about macronutrients and tracking and there's even some mainstream media play there. And so now they're like, oh, don't do that. Let, let us just sell you our food. Yeah, it'll go back and forth, I guess, until eventually, I don't think, actually, I think it just goes back and forth constantly. <laughs> I don't think it eventually settles. I just think it goes back and forth. Um, 
with respect to, you know, switching gears just a little bit. Um, and I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't know if you have anywhere to go. I'm good. Just, just okay. head to the gym after this. Okay, good. Um, I won't take too much of your time, but I wanted to get a little bit more into your mental performance and just the way that you think about things. It's very clear that um, you're very intelligent and you seem to have um, you know, you think philosophically about a lot of things and analytically about a lot of things. Um, that's probably a, a big strong suit for you. Um, has it ever become a double-edged sword for you at times w when it comes to certain things? Oh, for sure. So, uh, first of all, I, I, I would return that compliment to you. Oh, thank you. You, you, you can't, you can't sit down and have a conversation with you without realizing the same thing. This is a contemplative person, somebody who's very temperate. And, and a thinker and there's, you know, you're not, you're not an impulsive, you know, shoot first and aim later kind of guy. <laughs> but I will say that probably described me early in my life. I, I cannot tell you how many times my mom washed my mouth out with soap, literally. <laughs> um, how many times my mom would say, you know, you're a big mouth, you're this, you're like, you're, you're just, this all I ever heard was your mouth, your mouth, your mouth. Cause I was, uh, I was a fighter. I was somebody who questioned authority uh, I, I, I wanted my own autonomy, you know, even when I was 17 years old, I, in my senior year of high school, we had this program where, um, you know, you could work half days, graduate, what, as long as you had your credits in. So my senior year, I had one class, my first semester, then I went to work and then I graduated a semester early and I was in the military. I was like checked out, leaving my family, leaving my hometown. I was just, I was just ready for life. So I've always been somebody who is five steps ahead of my own ability, perhaps. And um, I think now in maybe the last 10 years, I'm, I'm kind of catching up and settling into a groove where, where I do understand some of the things that you seem to know already in your life, which is, you know, take a breath, relax, mm -hmm. just, just kind of process things first and not be so, so out front. But um, you know, to your point, it's it's been a journey, and you know, any any intellectual ability I have, it's it's simply because I've I've let other people invest in me, and and I've become much more open-minded. There were things that I would say in my twenties and thirties I was much more black and white and dogmatic and closed-minded about. Now I'm much more of kind of a, an existential absurdist who doesn't take things quite that seriously and. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think it's it's a huge part of just maturation, and more than anything, it's 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 being curious and open-minded and inquisitive, and and having the humility to say there's there's an awful lot I know nothing about, and very little that I know much about. It's I'm just that consummate student, and uh, that's that's what makes me wanna wanna keep learning. Well, it definitely takes humility and a certain sense of humbleness to be able to recognize that, I think. And, you know, I, I wonder for you if there's ever been points, because I know this is true for me, where um, I have a lot of goals or expectations of myself of what I think that I should be able to accomplish or what I want to be able to accomplish. And so with you, like having all of these businesses, having having built what you have built, have there been times where you found yourself really frustrated with with your inability to get things done at either in a timely manner or what you thought was a timely manner or, or things of that nature? 
Um, I, I would say that I, I know where my threshold is. When, when you ask a question like, how do you do so much? How do you get so much done? There's the prioritization and knowing that there's going to be a cost, that some things have to be put to the side. But I also know now that I really can only manage one big project at a time. I used to be writing three different books at a time, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this with my business, do this with school, this and this. It's like, you can't do that. You, you can't do 10 things part way, just focus on one thing at a time and finish it and do it well. And so that's, that's been a, a new discipline over the last few years for me to really pay attention and, and make myself do that. So I don't, I don't think I have a, a frustration any longer about not getting things done. If anything, there's that ticking clock, that fear of missing out, like, wow, I'm, I'm 50 years old and how much more time do I have to work and what else can I do? What else do I want to do? And so you start categorizing things in terms of an actual finish line. You know, this, this is probably going to be about the length of the rest of my career. This is probably going to be the, the length of my life. What do I really want to do with that? Because when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, those were the first questions I had that made me seek and pursue things that my upbringing wouldn't necessarily have given me. I mean, I left home and went in military because we were a poor family. We didn't, we didn't have money to go to college. I had to work three, four, five jobs at a time to go to school. Uh, I've done that every step of the way. And so now I'm, as I said, just looking for how to prioritize and maximize the true experience. Not about what I accomplish, it's about what I want my life to have been about. What, I, what were my true experiences? I'll be honest with you. Uh, this last year, it, was, it wasn't until um, it was a, about midway through last year that I started to have these thoughts that I wasn't going to live forever and that I was not immortal. Um, and I think at a, that happens at a different place for everybody, I think. For me, it just happened to happen then. Um, it was a little bit scary, right? Because you start to think about things in a different perspective and it gives you almost a bit of anxiety um, of what is going to happen. What is the, you know, there's a lot of unknown there all of a sudden because you don't, you know, you're for, for the first 20 some odd years of my life, I never thought about it at all. Um, I think I heard you talk about on a podcast once before seeing, I think it was um, Olympia weekend and you were staying with a group of folks and you saw a book on the table that had something to do with like accepting death or something like that. Um, and I actually happened to, to, to hear that podcast at, a, at the time that I was kind of dealing with all this. Um, do you have any advice for anybody who's in that in that part of their journey where um, they're looking at how much they want to get accomplished versus how much time they realistically have to do it um, and maybe getting through that anxiety or accepting what their capabilities are going forward. Man, what a, what a great topic to dive into. We're going <laughs> to be here another couple hours now. Right? <laughs> um, but you're exactly right. So you could go all the way back to Nietzsche and Freud and Jung, and then you're talking about uh, Becker. Is it Becker or Beckett? Uh, you know, his book was, was called The Denial of Death. Hmm. But there was this concept that they brought about called death anxiety. Uh, Irving Yalom was one that I wrote or, or that I read. Uh, Staring at the Sun was he was kind of a student of Freud. Um, but there's this concept of death anxiety that you don't even know you're feeling this. It's, it's the cost of consciousness. As soon as you realize 
your mortality, there's this white noise. Irving Yalom calls it this white noise in the background, and it can get louder, it can get more chaotic, but it's always there. You're, you're not going to live forever. What if you die? It, 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 it hits us as kids. We, we think of uh, our parents dying. It's the biggest fear any child has. Uh, and so even as a parent, as I see my kids, like that's a part of their insecurity as mom and dad are aging. They're not going to be here forever. What if they, you know, my friend's dad died when she was six, you know, what would that be like? So it is always there and it really manifests itself you know, once we get out of those, those, those adolescent years of actual fear, it's, is my life what I want it to be? Am I going to get done what I want? Am I going to be who I wanted to be? Is this going to be a wasted life? Am I going to lay on my deathbed and have all of these regrets? And so I think it's appropriate for us to have some level of, of conscious thought about that and address it head on. And, and I think that's one of the greatest gifts I ever had. I don't know when this happened for me, but very early in my adulthood, I decided I want this life and it's willing or it's worth working for. And, and, and it, it was, it was in that, it was in that concept of death anxiety because I know I've only got one life and I'm not going to be that person with all these regrets. So I'm going to live it exactly like it wants. I'm a complete non-materialist. Uh, I, I, you know, arrogance, ego, those kind of things are valueless to me. It's just all about the experience. That's why I was so, uh, you know, just just complicitly involved with with rearing my children, being part of their lives. Even as adults now, you know, I'm the first one to go help them with things because it's the relationships that matter. And um, so I don't know. I, I mean, whatever you were feeling at that time, I think. I think it's important to accept it, to check in with it once in a while and say, okay, this is normal. This is the cost of being conscious. What am I doing? This is a, this is a good feeling to have. Let me, let me assess my life and make sure I am going down the paths I want in terms of my character, in terms of my career, in terms of my relationships. All of that stuff is, is worth looking into objectively. I've heard a few times that with with fear, the tendency for people is to run away from it, obviously. They want to turn away from fear um, and hide from it because they feel that that is the best way to get it to go away. But I think the truth, and this is not my own thinking, this is me reading uh, other people's work, but the truth is that it is in facing the fear head on and going towards it where you become comfortable with it, right? In realizing that what you just said earlier, that anxiety, death anxiety, um, in this instance, is something that is kind of always there as a white noise. It doesn't go away, but you get comfortable with it because you accept it. Um, and there's times that it crops up and it probably, you know, hits you in the face out of nowhere, makes you feel a certain way, but, but at least you then have the tools to face it. And I think that that's probably true for any kind of anxiety or any kind of fear that you might face in life. Well, let me, let me give you this one way to wrap up this topic, at least from my perspective. Albert Camus was a French philosopher who lived just last century, very, very current person. And he said, in light of all of this work and death anxiety, he was standing on the shoulders of giants who had, who had really extricated this entire topic. He said, you only have three responses. A lot of people who think when they come into just the, the realm of their own consciousness and mortality, 
everybody thinks the ultimate outcome is suicide. I, I face the fact that I am nothing. I'm a blip on the screen of a 4.6 billion year old planet that won't be here forever. Why even go on when life has so much suffering? And so some people will commit suicide, but that's not the norm. That's not a high percentage of people. Most people commit intellectual suicide. Mm -hmm. They just bury their head in the sand. They pretend it doesn't, it's not happening. And then that anxiety just builds and builds and builds. Or, you know, this is why, you know, different religions have been created over the millennia. That's, that's how we deal with it. Oh, well, now I don't have to deal with it because I'm going to live forever. I just die and I go to someplace else. So there's physical death, intellectual death, or like you said, there's facing it. And the only way you can face it is to say, I kind of have to grieve over my own death. Now I have to accept this is going to happen. I have a finite lifespan where not a single day more is even guaranteed. So I got to be okay living my life. There's that makes you kind of plan for the long term, but it also makes you accept and enjoy every single minute. That's that's the purest joy. And that's that was Albert Camus' point. When you finally accept that, you are free, you are happy. Uh, there's a, there's a, a Mediterranean, a, a Greek philosopher, another modern guy I love. Uh, he said, I fear nothing, I hope for nothing, I am free. When you get to that point where you can say, I don't fear my own death, I don't fear anything, I hope for nothing, I got all I need, I don't need anything, I'm free. That's, that's when you truly accept it and, and you can enjoy your life. Would you call that almost like an ego death? Absolutely. So Absolutely. There's, so there's intellectual death, physical death, and then ego death, I guess you could say, would yeah. be the third option. Yep. That's really interesting. I know that uh, <laughs> it's fun to have this conversation with you because a lot of times I don't feel that I'm able to like get this deep on certain topics with certain with certain people, but I had a sense that you were somebody that would be receptive to it. Um, have you always been this way? Have you always thought of things this way? Were there events in your life that um, maybe were catalysts for this way of thinking? Was it reading these books? Was it having children? Was it uh, anything like that? You know, I have to give definitely a lot of credit to just luck, you know, having the right people in my life, the right time, watching the right show, listening to podcasts, reading a book. But if I, if I had to kind of dig through my own life, I would say that certain experiences we have make us seek out certain things. And so I, I had a mother who, by the time I was probably 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, she was critically ill. And she had several exploratory surgeries. She was at the Mayo Clinic several times. I mean, th there were times when the doctors said, we don't know what's wrong, but she's literally dying. And, and from that time of just you know, early boyhood, even, even to the point when I, you know, when I said I was driving away to go to basic training to, to go into the military, it was one of those times when she was ill. And uh, I remember having to pull over to the side of the road at 17 years old because I was crying so hard I couldn't even see the road because I, I thought I was leaving my mom and I would never see her again. And so, first of all, that, that, that is probably not a great thing like that. That may have pushed me to a point of anxiety and so forth that, that a young person shouldn't feel, but it was life. It was my reality. And I think those are the kind of things that make you realize nothing is permanent. 
And even if there's grief and sadness there, like you live through it. Uh, another thing is my first daughter, we, we had our son uh, about a year and a half later, our first daughter died at birth. And so I literally had to hold my daughter in my hands as she's dying, watching her take her last breath. Something that you think you could never recover from. Like that was, that was a, a year of just shocking pain and grief. And yet you do recover and you move on and you realize there's still a lot of great things in the world, even though there's a lot of bad and there's a lot of suffering. So I, I would also say just, just to put a fine point on this, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had to work for everything. You know, I, you, you can see what it's like to be entitled in, in some of these bratty people who just grow up thinking everything comes easy. Man, I was, I was working when I was 13 years old. I was, I was washing windows downtown when I was 13. I was working in a restaurant as a dishwasher when I was 14. I mentioned, you know, when I was in physical therapy school, I was working three, four, five jobs at a time. We were in school from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, but three days a week at two to three in the morning, I was in downtown Indianapolis cleaning parking lots for 20 bucks an hour. On the weekends, I was cleaning houses. I had a friend who gave me jobs cleaning houses. On the evenings, Friday and Saturday evenings, I worked as a caterer. I was wearing a little tuxedo shirt, filling up iced tea glasses at events in Indianapolis. Some Saturdays, I would work in a bookstore. Like any job I could get to stay in school, I was doing that. And that kind of need, you know, that, I mean, it, it creates that work ethic where nothing is guaranteed. If you want something of value, you have to work for it. You have to give something of value and you just take nothing for granted. Lots of great information here. I, I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation. And um, if I were to ask you one more question uh, before we go, I, and I think you've covered it uh, in all of the questions that I've asked you so far, but um, if you were to identify some crucial habits or a few crucial habits that are essential in your mind to somebody being successful in any endeavor that they want to be successful in, what would those be? Well, like what you did, you, you and I met a few years ago. I was uh, attending for fun a uh, an event that Lane Norton had had put on, and, and you were speaking. You were his coach at the time, and so I got to see you and meet you, and that's where we connected. And I and I think that's the most important thing. I I don't mean this to sound sappy and and overly emotional, but the relationships we have is is I think the most important thing in life. Um, you know. When, when you go back to that deathbed experience and say, what, what meant most to me? What, what am I happy about? What am I grateful for? What do I regret? The thing you're going to remember are, are the relationships you have and the people you have. I, I had a friend of mine who passed away at about my age, uh, and I was a pallbearer, and I had to sit in the front row watching his wife and children grieve. And to see every single person there, you know, in what he meant to them and what those people meant to each other. That's, that's all there is. That's all that matters at, at, at the end. And so for you to reverse engineer that and live your life in a way that you're, you're always willing to be open-minded, humble, curious, a consummate student and, and be with the people that you want to be with, you know, cultivate those relationships and, and keep those connections alive. It's, it's the absolute most important thing. 
in every sense of the human experience. There's, there's a Harvard Business Review study I often quote to my business development coaches where the most successful people at the top of every industry are the people in the companies that have the broadest range of relationships. So it's a very open source, high touch, high relationship concept. It works in business. It works in life. It's, uh, it's, it's the most important thing. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving me your time today and for being on my podcast. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to plug your websites and your all, all the things you're working on. So give everybody, um, you know, what you're working on right now, what they can consume from you, where they can reach you and all of that. But the easiest place would go to the diet doc.com. Uh, everything we do, the, the logos you see behind me and all that, it, it's very vertically integrated. We, we love to work with coaches. We like to help them become the best uh, you know, of, of the future for our industry. And so we have different entry points from just certifications to all the way up to franchising and all that. But that, that's my goal. You, know, you hear me say this at the beginning of my daily videos. I help fitness professionals create paths to the clients who need their expertise. And so uh, that's what I love to do. But people who have personal goals, personal transformation, uh, nutrition, fitness, all that stuff, you know, we, we, we have those services. But uh, the main thing is, uh, I'm just part of this industry, happy to see it grow into such maturity with, with people like you and I'm just thrilled to be a part. Awesome. Well, I'll let you go. Um, we'll cut it there. Um, sure. I'll have you on again in the future. Cause this was a very awesome podcast for me to have. And I got a lot out of it myself. Hopefully you guys listening got a lot of out of it as well. And we will catch you next time.